You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency critique and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Jay Rajiva, who teaches in the Department of English at Georgia State University in Atlanta, Georgia. He has published widely in Anglophone postcolonial literary studies, focusing on South Asia and English language works from Sub-Saharan Africa. Rajiva authored the 2017 work, Postcolonial Parabola, Literature, Tactility, and the Ethics of Representing Trauma, published by Bloomsbury, and is the author of Toward an Animist Reading of Postcolonial Trauma Literature, published in 2020 by Rutledge, the occasion for our conversation today. In this conversation, we discuss the fecundity of animism as an interpretive frame, the ongoing relevance of traumatic memory in a range of postcolonial literatures, narrative and the complexity of representation, and the nature and promise of comparative intertextual study. Hello, Jay. How are you? Hi, John. Pretty good. How are you? I'm great. I'm really uh, excited to talk with you today about this uh, new book of yours, or recent book of yours, which I'm a huge fan of your work generally, and I really love this book. Um, I have a lot Thank of thoughts you. about it and, and really look forward to exploring a lot of the, the big questions it raises, the answers it gives, and the sort of new horizons it opens up. I think it's a, an immensely important book, and so I'm really grateful to have time that you made the time to talk about it today. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is uh, really looking forward to this. I want to start off with um, a really open question, which is an invitation for you, you know, uh, in terms of personal dimensions, um, intellectual dimensions, philosophical dimensions, uh, to ask you to sort of narrate your way into this work. You know, what motivated it? Why now? Why ask the questions you asked? And I ask that because, as we all know, as writers, um, when when we take on a book project, it takes over our lives. Right. We set lots of stuff aside, uh, including, uh, um, you know, family, friends, all of that sort of stuff. And also put ourselves at great risk in terms of self-esteem. <laughs> so something motivates us, right? And I always think those, these are interesting aspects of, of writing a book because... The book starts from somewhere. The book starts from a sense of a passion. So I just wanted to know about your intellectual, political, philosophical curiosities that led you into the project. Yeah, thanks. And that's great. I mean, <clears throat> and, and yes to all of that about the process of writing. My God, every time um, I wonder why I go back to it. Um, it is always a kind of a question. <laughs> it is kind of a question, open question. Um, and so this, this book is Toward an Animist Reading of Postcolonial Trauma Literature, um, Rutledge. And I had come, at the time that I wrote this, I was coming from my first book, Postcolonial Parabola. And that, that was my first book, Bloomsbury. Um, I had been arguing for kind of an asymptotic conception of narrative structure in postcolonial texts. And what I mean by that is just approaching but not arriving. So I had this whole mm -hmm. sort of parabolic model set up for... Uh, how these trauma texts from apartheid, post-apartheid in South Africa, and partition on the Indian subcontinent, how were these texts offering us views of trauma? <clears throat> and what were they doing? 
and why were, and how are they critiquing uh, sort of received notions of Western trauma theory, trauma texts, the Freudian talking cure, all of that. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> and you know, I focused a lot on narrative structure in that book um, because it's always been a research focus for me. I'm always mm -hmm. interested in what forms the spine of narrative, how that affects readers, what what's told when, and mm -hmm. what emerges from a careful consideration of of that structure. And I think for the animism book, I just I wanted to dig deeper into that structure. I wanted to see if uh, quite frankly, I could find um, what I would call animist patterns of meaning in these disparate um, post-colonial texts from um, from Nigeria, from India. Uh, <clears throat> animism in the structure, right? Animism as a mode of relation, um, this sort of spiritual properties of non-human matter and our relationship mm -hmm. to those things. So that's the big baggy umbrella definition that, that Graham Harvey uh, offers that I use as a starting point. Um, and so that's where I was coming from as I was writing this book. Um, my initial foray into it actually came by way of an invitation to part, participate in a panel. Um, this was uh, 2017 at the ACLA annual meeting complex, mm -hmm. uh, which I go to all the time and love and is generative for my work. And the co-organizers were Phil Dickinson, who I went to grad school with, and he's seen a lot of my work, and Sam Durant, who uh, wrote a very generous back cover review for my first book. Sam's fantastic. Um, I engaged with his thoughts on Achebe in the first chapter of, of this book, actually. <clears throat> so I brought a really rough early draft of my analysis of um, Arundhati Roy's The God of Small Things to that panel. Um, and it was just extremely generative, and I don't remember specifics now because, you know, that was five years ago and five years ago plus pandemic time so it feels like 10. I know um, it was like 2017 <laughs> I was like decades ago. That was just decades ago exactly <laughs> so I but uh, but it was it was really great I, I remember it was in um it was at Utrecht so it was in actually in the Netherlands and so that was cool to be able to just go there and never been there before um but I left that conference feeling like I wanted and needed to explore this topic of animism in in post-colonial trauma literature specifically at book length um, and the other thing that I'll just say, uh, the other pull was, <clears throat> I think it was either that year or possibly the year after, I was presenting a paper on uh, Edwige Danticat's work at a symposium I'd been invited to. Um, this was at Salem State University. Lisa Mullman, who's also great, had invited me to do this. And the keynote for that symposium was being given by Bob Eaglestone, whose work I love and, and admire immensely. And my first book, I think, had just come out, and he was pretty enthusiastic, which is very kind of him. So he said, and one of the things he said to me, I think one night when we were sort of talking after we went for a drink or did something, is that um, you know the things that he liked about my work were that I was offering an actual concrete, not solution, but what would these alternative forms of representing trauma look like? In that, in this little domain of post-colonial trauma studies, we, we always point out the need for alternative forms of narrative. Mm -hmm. Narrative that doesn't conform to these Western conceptions, a narrative that respects the complexity of lived experience. So we point out the problem a lot, but we don't actually offer a picture of what, what the alternative might be. Um, and, and very gracious, he was very gracious about this, that he said that was part of what he liked about my approach. I was actually doing that work, sort of um, showing us what that might look like in, 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 that, in that case, Dante Cutts' text, The Dew Breaker. And, you know, those words, uh, you know, Bob's great. And, and, those words stuck with me, and I've really, that was part of the impetus for, for focusing on what's on animism in this book, yeah. 
I love that. I mean, <clears throat> I think that the origins of books, like I said, I mean, they're interesting because of the, the emotional and personal investment. But also, as you say, the way a panel invitation and a conversation, you know, at a book display or having a drink or these sorts of things can can end up generating a massive project. So um, absolutely, I love that. I remember the the Utrecht. Uh, uh, ACLA and I was very sad that I did not send something so <laughs> maybe I would have had a great book project to come <laughs> up well. Well, let me ask you um, about really about your title right in the two two words that that I want to draw out in particular one animism which you've already spoken to uh, a bit so I'm interested in in to hear you talk about you know where does that frame come from um, you know you know that's the that's the innovation of the book in so many ways, and it's 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 an innovation that I hope really resonates across postcolonial studies, because I think it's incredibly important and, and really fascinating when it's put to work across the, your chapters. Um, but I'm interested to hear you talk about you know where did it come from and what do you think it offers in terms of of talking about your authors. Uh, in the book, uh, that other frames wouldn't. You know what? What? What is interesting about it? What work does it do? But also the word toward. You know, and, and this may be one of these moments of overreading, but I still wanted to ask because, you know, toward is an interesting. Uh, it has an interesting temporality to it, as you said. You yeah. know, this notion of parabola in, in your previous work is also about different space, different pacing, different time, right. different sense of arrival and deferral, and so forth. So it's interesting that it isn't a an animist reading, right? It's toward, and so I'm also curious about that term. Obviously, animism is the big concept that you know animates the book but also this notion of toward i found really interesting so i'd be interested to hear you talk about that as well yeah thank you and i love that i don't think it's overreading at all i mean as as we know as authors i'm sure john you you agonize over your book titles just like you know just like i do just like we I, all do right i should agonize over other parts as much as i do over titles yeah it's right <laughs> right right exactly right so much in those little those few words so i mean just looking at toward first and and then going back yeah. to animism um I genuinely, like, the one reason I think is that I genuinely didn't see this type of reading being done. And, and you're very kind to sort of talk about it as an innovation. And I, I hope in my best, you know, when I feel the best about my work that that is innovative. It's innovative in that way. So I wasn't seeing this kind of reading done, not in a cross-geographic context. So in a sense, toward marks... It's a way to sort of sign the provisionality of being out there without uh -huh. without a net, you know, not in the vanguard of any any kind of critical movement, um, you know, joining a space that already exists. And the second reason I think has to do with what you mentioned in your question and, and alluded to in, in the title of my first book, uh, which is uh, motion, right? That resistance to being settled and declarative, to give that type of order and sedimentation to anim yeah. animus literary readings of all things, um, it just would have felt a little weird, a little like I was missing the mark on what I was doing. Um, mm -hmm. So both that preposition, uh, you know, and the gerund, you know, like animism toward an animist reading, they add up to a, you know, to a signal that we're moving in process, we're not complete. Uh -huh. And I think that's where that, you know, if I think there is a strength, I think it is in what you've described, is that it's using this framework, um, this animist framework. It's very broad. So one thing I'll say is, I offered Harvey's description earlier. It's extremely broad. So broad that if you look at it at that level, it might not seem useful. 
Um, but then it's tied to these very, very highly specific, localized, culturally specific, spiritually specific uh, applications. So there is no one animism, even though I use the word, but there's no one animism. Uh, Linda Hogan calls it tradition. The, um, the difference between the Igbo notion of the Ogbanje, you know, on one on the one hand, and the Nayaka superperson or the Devaru on the other, those are as profound as any similarities they might share mm -hmm. under this rubric. And so I think it's an invitation to look at all this richness under the surface um, in a way that allows us to critique again. Um, this tendency to diagnose when we approach post-colonial trauma texts using these clinical concepts. And Steph Kraps has talked a lot about this in, in witnessing, post-colonial witnessing, um, <clears throat> you know, that danger of, <clears throat> the danger of coming in with this kind of ready-made prêt-à-porter, you know, dropping in concept of yeah. the talking cure and how much damage Ethan Waters, all that stuff that they've just done so well. Um, the problems here, right? So that's a problem in real life as well as in literature. Um, it's a problem I face sometimes with my students if I teach trauma in the classroom where they I tell them You know, we're not going to play this game of trying to figure out whether a character has PTSD or not This is not useful, yeah. right? We're not psychologists. We're not trained in that way. We don't play them on TV. There's no <clears throat> There's no benefit to that. Um, I think once we approach with this animus perception in mind we are able to attend to all the kind of dimensions of life that exist in these texts that um, that this kind of Western trauma theory doesn't allow us to see and we can attend to these highly, highly specific um, ways of being and relationality. And I think that's, I, I, that, that was what excited me when I, when I sort of found the frame of the book, that, that was what excited me and spurred me to keep, uh, to keep writing it. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I know that uh, that's, I mean, I think that's one of the risks of, of talking, especially <laughs> you know over i think over the last five or six years the way the way as a public we talk about trauma right the, the attempt to diagnose oh. traumatized people in a text rather than see it as a as you say as, as a narrative structure as a space of responsiveness of 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 the writing um, and those kinds of complexities. So, Absolutely. you know, I also really appreciate that. <laughs> it definitely is not a book that says, you know, let's diagnose these people as animists or as traumatized figures. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, what you, know, you mentioned uh, a bit about, about some of the figures you, you talk about in the book. And you know, so I also wanted to ask you about that to, to think about and talk a little bit about why you chose to write about the figures you write about. And I will say just broadly, you know, in terms of your two books, you know, one of the things I like so much about your work, I mean, I like your analysis. I think it's challenging and interesting and innovative. Um, and, you know, we don't often, you know, imagine that about our own work. So just trust me on that. It's really innovative stuff. I don't appreciate that. The second that. book uh, in, in particular. But um, one of the things, aside from that, a thing that I really love about your work is, the geographies that you do cover. You don't have a particular specialized area or even period, right? So I think about yeah. this book in terms of your major figures. You have what we might call like an immediate post-colonial figure in Achebe, right? Literally living yeah. and writing in this moment of independence. You have diasporic figures, right? Okafor and Lahiri. But you also have a contemporary sort of post-colonial you know, in the wake of post-colonial experience in Roy. 
So I'm curious, you know, why these figures, sort of what led you to them, what caught your interest about them, um, and what do you think gathers them together in terms of your own frame of animism, but also the post-colonial and trauma? Like what gathers them together, but also really what drew you to them? And even if it's just, I really love their writing, I think that's a great answer. <laughs> but also, you know, then they come together in the book. It's not discrete chapters do you t do tell a big story in addition to being very attentive to each individual and it's like what makes that big story out of discrete readings is so interesting to me yeah thanks john and thank you for those kind words i will treasure those and, and store them for the, all those rainy days when we, we we don't feel good about our own work and we're in the throes of a project and i, I really appreciate that and the sensitivity of your your reading too, the generosity of it but yeah i mean in, in a sense that in response to your question, yeah, it, of course it begins with being fascinated by these works and these texts. You know, The God of Small Things is a work that I've loved, you know, so many have for a long time, and Things Fall Apart is, it is what it is, right? It is the, you know, one of the cornerstones of, of the field. So, you know, that, it was that. But I think really in trying to draw that narrative of animism and the threads that run through these books, um, I really found my, to be honest, I found my way into a lot of it inductively through the process of writing. Um, I had propositions in proposals at the beginning about what I would find. Um, <clears throat> some of that changed, didn't change very much in the, in the book manuscript, and some of it changed radically. Uh, there was a point where, um, you know, I always knew that I wanted to write on Achebe and Obioma, The Fisherman and Things Fall Apart, in, not just because of the explicit intertextual reference in Obiyama's work, so the, the characters literally are talking about Okonkwo killing the messenger in, 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 in The Fisherman, and, and they, they even draw, there's this, he draw, one of the figures, he draws the stick fig, like these stick figures of, of how he imagines like the retribution happening to uh, Abulu. So I was, I was taken by that, and, and I wanted in that opening chapter, I think, to to show how we might kind of achieve a kind of animist reading, a kind of co-reading, where we talk about these two texts in tandem um, and attend to them in tandem. And by doing so, we find a way to think about things fall apart um, in our, for today's, in our context. So in that sense, I'm taking Achebe writing in his own time, as you mentioned, Eve of Independence in Nigeria and that immediate post-colonial context. And I'm kind of pulling him into, into the present just because of the transformative effect he has had, obviously, on yeah. so many writers, and clearly on, on Obioma and, and in this book. And so that, <clears throat> that became a way to consider these recurrences of meaning, these, these all, all the life, like the sort of the world of meaning that is contained and things fall apart, mm -hmm. that is ported into the fisherman. It's uncanny. Not to, and I'm using Freud, which is stupid, because I just, you know, <laughs> having warned about not using the talk here, I'm using the uncanny, but there is an uncanny sense of uh, these figures making their way into the text, um, we as contemporary readers reading them, and how that adds up to an ethical command or some kind of ethical critique of what they're, how things are going wrong, how things are falling apart for them, how they start, this family starts at the kind of peak of what they've reproduced. They have this large family. They're sort of, you know, comfortably, um, you know, prosperous in Nigeria. And it's the story, of, in, in a sense, it's the story of their fall, which kind of mirrors, uh, you know, Umuofa as well. But, um, but in order to get that, you really have to attend to how they miss the mark on the worlds that are present to them, 
what Abulu might represent, their own implication in, uh-huh. in the fact that they murdered this man for absolutely no justifiable reason. Like he doesn't do anything except present his, his body, which is the evidence of, of poverty and the evidence of you know, mental illness. So that was, that was, I think, the key that I had early. And then the other chapters, and I had stuff on Roy and Ghosh that was sort of in parts, you know, that I knew was going to pull it together. Um, the third chapter on Lahiri and, and on uh, Siddhartha Debs and Outline of the Republic, that was a great, that was a blank for me. It was like unexplored country. I had three lines on a proposal where I thought I was going to talk about something. I had no clue that I would be, that I would be using Ro- Michael Rothberg's wonderful book, The Implicated Subject, to frame most of the analysis in that section. Um, possibly probably because it hadn't been published yet by the time when I was first thinking about this project um, and I didn't own it and you know when I got it and I started reading it and it just it, those connections became so clear this idea of messiness implication his wonderful way of thinking outside of these categories of like victim perpetrator you know pure victim demonic perpetrator etc so he has this this category of implication and it seemed to fit so well with the animist conception of co-implication with matter, right? So we're not, we're not apart. It's not binary. This matter is insurgent in all these ways, whether it's the rivers, it's the lowland, it's the, it's the, the photographs that speak back to the narrator in, in the outline of the Republic. Um, and it was me doing what I always do in a sense is the biting off more than I can chew, <laughs> you know, thinking, yeah, thinking yeah. I, want, I want to take all these things and I know there's something here and, and to produce a reading that kind of synthesizes these different positions and so yeah that's 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 it i mean i think you know that that's what really powerful interpretive frames do is allow you to travel from you know u.s diasporic writing spaces to western africa to india and draw really interesting insights and i think uh, you know you had said before this notion of animism is is itself in motion or flex flexible is not the right word in motion i think is i like the way you put it that way um so that you're able to tell as the book does a coherent theoretical story without being uh, overpowering and reductive you know because i think this there are sort of three ways that books unfold when they have such different geographies i think one is to be a comparativist right that's always my my that's my way of writing and and, you know so many people's way of writing that's a particular kind of method then there's overpowering these with a big theoretical frame around the uncanny or or freudian trauma or these sorts of things but i think you know one of the one of the things you do in this book is model uh concepts in motion and this with this notion of animism that allows you to see something in these resonances in Nigeria, but also be able to, you know, put a chapter alongside that that's talking about India. Yeah, that, that's thank not you. an easy geography, uh, geographical difference to make into a book that's not just discrete chapters because it's not a collection of essays. Yeah, it's yeah. You're right. I mean, and, and that's that's interesting that you say that, and, and it makes me think of South South connections, obviously too, right? And so yeah. maybe part of it is, you know, and, and, and you know, comparative work is great, and you know, and I love master narratives too. Grand Grand theory is awesome, you know, for for the work that it does. But I think 
using these kinds of south-south connections or, or drawing them, which I don't see done often enough. So maybe that's part of my, my impetus for doing this. Um, it allows us to kind of detach from simply the kind of oppositional relationship between the decolonized country and like Britain or the US or France or wherever, any of the colonial uh, or neo-colonial powers. Um, and again, so much great work has been done in that area. But for this book, it really felt like I wanted to look at a moment that was close, you know, that th this is our moment today where we're not dealing with the immediate aftermath of colonialism in these contexts. We're trying to sort of isolate patterns of meaning and structures of meaning. Um, and why can't we do this? Like, why can't we compare India and Nigeria, you know, where yeah. where we can we, we can make diaspora comparisons across the Atlantic all the time. Um, and yet, in so doing, I'm pretty wary about, as you said, offering this kind of broad kind of ham this conceptual frame that, you know, you override and you just apply it like you put it face down on everything. I mean, partly I think as a writer because if I did that, I would get bored very easily. <laughs> it's like boredom. Yeah, boredom yeah. sets in, and then like in the third chapter, you're like, am I, am I just making the same argument again? I'm, I'm bored of myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so. I, you know. There's the boredom, but there's also the way that, and it's a, again, I think is a virtue of your book, um, and it's the thing I like when books, uh, I, mean, I think we all like when books do this, which is you are attentive to the text, yeah. you know, and, and that, that's that's what the big narrative, and even comparative work, I mean, I think about that all the time with my own work, like, how do I stay close to the text while also doing the creative space of comparative um, but that, that attention, as you said at the very beginning, you know, your interest in narrative and narrative structure, I think helps that anchor work really well. And, well, and yeah. you resist the temptation for a, for a heavy-handed frame, which is not easy because you just once you get inside that frame, in this case of, <laughs> of animism, I mean, it's a it's a shiny lure to you know it could be you know Jay's conception of animism going forward, but it's not really ever quite that. No, it's animism. No as it sort of blossoms in different spaces. Absolutely, different and I think, and two points to respond to that. One, that because animism has, is so grounded in indigenous ontologies and indigenous modes of being, I'm not an, a, a scholar of indigenous literature. So I'm very careful on that front, you know, do a lot of work to sort of situate animism in that tradition. But also it's not mine, right? That's, it's, it's, not, it's mm -hmm. not my purview. It's, it'll never be Jay's theory, um, that would be Pretty gross, actually, if I if I tried to do that and, and problematic. Um, but it's also the kind of work, as you said, that we want to see done. We want to balance the the kind of the big picture um, against paying attention to the text. I'm a lit studies guy, and you know, I love you know. I'm it's I sounds boring to say, but I love close reading. And one of the things, in fact, that I loved about your recent book on Glissant is that you balance the Glissant, you balance the big picture with the just masterful exe exegesis of Glissant's thought. And what you call his shoreline thinking, which has stuck with me, you know, since I, since I read the book, um, that's it's always just balancing those two things, and um, and I, I love to see that elsewhere. So I just try to replicate that in my own writing. I like that. So um, one, of, I really love the opening chapter, um, in part because I thought it was a really great chapter, but also because um, it uses two of my favorite words, uh, prophecy and materiality. <laughs> so I'm just going to ask. I think they're you know, they do work in the book. Um, but I want to just ask you to sort of walk through prophecy and materiality, what's going on with those uh, terms, uh, how you understand them in relation, and how you think that shapes the book. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. And I think um, 
again, that's one of those provisional things. I think that chapter, I wrote that chapter fairly early on so that by the time I got to the third chapter on insurgent matter, um, there was a kind of haunting there that I could that I could point to in terms of prophecies and and then materiality kind of tangible things. So prophecy here, prophecy almost as force, right? Like first prophecy as a structure of narrative meaning. So someone's prophesying that something is going to happen um, in the text, and and this happens at the start of the fisherman. Um, there are all these sort of prophetic moments, of course, in in things fall apart, even to the extent that the epigraph signals that things are going to fall apart. Um, and that's it's generative because we're dealing with words on a page, right? And those words eventually acquire their own type of materiality. This happens for the characters in both of the books. Um, as these words like, like Okonkwo killed the messenger, Abulu will be the downfall of this house. You know, of course he will be the downfall of this house, but not really for the reasons that, that, are, that are advanced. Um, so it evokes it evokes this the, the um, it evokes the ineffable quality I think prophecy does of these animist life worlds without being yeah. utopian without being deterministic it points to the things that cannot be known um, and of course Benjamin's family in the fishermen you know they grasp this but then they do exactly the wrong thing with it you know they 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 inhabit they sort of pretend to inhabit this world of community relation but it's a hollow relation it's really built on status and hierarchy not paying attention to things and um, sort of ex exiling anything that doesn't fit within a kind of Christian frame to to the margins. And Abulu is sort of the excess matter in that sense. Mm -hmm. And so if prophecy points them that way um, toward what cannot be known, then there is this, this, this body that appears that makes a claim, a challenge to them. Um, and increase, and you know, much is made in the novel of Abulu's corporeal presence, his wounds, his filth, you know, all of that, mm -hmm. um, which are all outgrowths of poverty, right? So there's nothing, you know, nothing mysterious about it on that front, but um, the way that they are unable to let go, the way that he recurs in the text, um, this anxiety, so we have prophecy pointing toward ruin, but it's also pointing toward this anxiety of, um, about what I would call maybe unrestrained matter, right? This kind mm -hmm. of excessive matter. Um, I touch on this in the text by referencing um, Johnson's anxiety of the horde, right? Where this, this kind of racist colonial archetypal notions of losing yourself, becoming one with the horde. We see all this, we see this in Heart mm -hmm. of Darkness, of course, you know, the classic example that everyone knows, but what's the worst thing? You know, losing yourself and being possessed. But how does this tie into to colonialism, of course, um, if you're dealing with the individual with property, you really don't want to deal with any loss of possession. It's hard to dominate and control people if they if they have a sense of themselves that isn't rooted in this notion of the individual. Mm -hmm. So prophecy kind of makes that manifest throughout the, the, the chapter. Like it, it recurs, it becomes a structuring mechanic, it's a type of narrative, it eventually destroys the family, and yet it gives Benjamin who's the narrator, um, a chance, I think, right at the end to consider the types of relations that are available to him in a different kind of world. So there is, there is that sense at the end that there is a light or some kind of, some way forward for him outside mm -hmm. uh, of these frameworks. Um, and that really influences, I think that influenced a lot of the book. And I think what you're picking up, is, what you're picking up there on is, is absolutely 
genuine and right on and that 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 goes on to do a lot of work in the in the subsequent chapters yeah um, and i'm gonna do uh, <laughs> I'll jump ahead to the conclusion um and also uh, you know i'm a reader so so it's, i guess i guess <laughs> i have the right to, to find things that, that really stuck out for me um but you know prophecy and materiality i love the way they're intertwined to really change the meaning of those two terms in the ways that you described and Another favorite word of mine is uh, entanglement, right? right? And your conclusion right. talks about entangling. And so I also wanted to ask you about that. I mean, this is, you know, these are the things that as, you know, you open the book and maybe, you know, the cover and title, and then you open the book and then you look at the table of contents. You know, we all read the acknowledgments, but never acknowledge that those are the first things we read. <laughs> but then the table of contents, I was like, oh, prophecy materiality love that and then entangling and entanglement and what i you know what i liked as a reader was the way it shifted my way of thinking about those things i mean just the way you were talking about prophecy and materiality now um and the way it is deployed in the book is i mean it really made me think about how in many ways my own writing and thinking about prophecy and materiality um struggles to overcome the sort of ancient Greek dualism of that, right? Mm. From the gods, right. from right. our bodies suffering and this sort of thing. And you really complicate that in ways that make me want to go rewrite some stuff. I mean, that's that's <laughs> why we read. Uh, right. But then this notion of entanglement and, and entangling, you know, you evoke that in the, the title of the conclusion. So I'm curious, you know, what why that term? Like why, why is that in the title? Why does that, that, that come up in the conclusion? And how do you think it it as a term helps do what conclusions do, which is tie the text together and even point in new directions. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's an awesome question. And, and yeah, the entanglement issue. So entangling to me, I think, I mean, I had been reading a fair amount of eco-criticism uh, as the kind of background for doing work for this book. And I think I have a section early, I think it's either in the introduction where I talk about why I'm not actually using an eco-critical frame uh, in part because um, so much of the deracination that happens in eco-critical studies where we don't, apparently this is all work that's being done thinking about nature, um, but not thinking about sort of, let's say how people of color are forced to inhabit these kinds of spaces of, that, are, that have made, been made more perilous, environmental destruction, slow violence, Rob Nixon's term. So that I, was, I was in that mindset. Um, the, the word was a way to get away from exactly that dualism that you're describing, right? That's so rooted in so many, I'm using rooted in Glissant's critical use of it, right? Yeah. It's so rooted in so much of um, literary tradition, how we think about texts, how we think about making meaning, how we construct meaning as scholars. Um, and it's not bad necessarily, but it is something that I was trying to do something different, I think methodologically with this project. So entangling, things is a way to get at that relationship entangled yeah. caught up um sort of tangled together mm -hmm. and yet that difficulty becomes a productive point right it's mm -hmm. yes it's messy to live to interact with other things uh and in fact when trauma comes uh that entanglement is too intense right to go back to uh, yeah, one more time back to freud for that the uh the pleasure principle the sort of the railway accident something that happens too soon before you you have an, a, a chance to adjust but entanglement is part of lived experience, right? And I think at this point in 2022, we can, you know, we can, 
we can see that you know there have been certainly enough critiques of Cartesian rationalism and Cartesian dualism, right? So it's not like I'm going to do one more of those. Um, but I think paying attention to that as a structuring principle in the book was important. So I did this kind of in and out structure where I started with like two Nigerian texts and then I went into India for like two chapters and then came out with, uh, you know, finished in Nigeria again, which just kind of looks airsats and weird. Um, but in the conclusion, I kind of demonstrate that that was part of the process, right? To be, I love writing that changes, you know, that, 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 that changes you in terms of perspective. And I really wanted to be honest about that approach in my writing, not just to say that these things were important, but to actually, uh, to actually do it, right? Um, and entanglement has a philosophical dimension too, and I try to explore that in the conclusion, right? You could read it almost as a modulation of Judith Butler's, the one, that phrase of hers that's often quoted a lot, let's face it, we're undone by each other, um, and if we're not, we're missing something. Um, mm -hmm. So let's not take being caught as being prisoner, right? We have this kind of messiness and correspondence that's here, um, and we can, we can actually exemplify that, you know, in our scholarly practice. Mm -hmm. I mean, it requires, you know, it requires uh, risky shifts and turns. You know, as you say, you know, this sort of Nigeria, India, India, Nigeria, right? These kinds of mixing of geographies and shifts and turns uh, requires, I think, really careful writing um, because entanglement, it's, I mean, it's not, if we think of, of part of writing as analysis, I mean, analysis really is about pulling apart and isolating, right? right. And right. being able to find ways to put the things we pull apart and analyze back in, together, or back into contact, not together, back into contact in ways yeah. that, that make those discrete commentaries, right? That analysis, you know, it, it really is. Um, you know, I think that's tricky. You know, that's I, I think a lot about entanglement and as a concept, right? Uh, whether it's Glissant's sort of evocation of quantum physics or something <laughs> like that, which you know just drives me to Wikipedia, as I suspect it probably did for him. Um, but also the demand, not just as a concept, but as as a as a way of organizing and writing, I, I think is its own kind of question. And so, you know. You know, I was happy to hear you speak to that a little bit in terms of the structure of the book, because it's not easy to do. It goes against, I think, some of our real habits as yeah. writers. Yeah. And let me ask you about um, about. Uh, in some ways, we you know we're working through the titles, <laughs> intro, conclusion, and back to the title of the book, and ask you about this notion of trauma. Um, yeah. You know, you know, I was a, a new PhD late graduate student, new PhD, when trauma studies became a really, um, you know, important intervention in the 1990s. And as you know, most of that writing, not nearly all of that writing circled around, you know, writing about after the Holocaust, trying to right. reckon with problems of representation, whether in poetry or cinema or, or you know, fiction. Um, but also, you know, especially in Germany, thinking about historiography, relationships between history and memory. Right. And, you know, what is, you know, in terms of that as a frame for reading, it really sort of ran its course in, in North Atlantic theory, we might call it, or, you know, certainly in European theory. But 
it lives as a really vital concept. I mean, obviously, it, in my own Glissant book, it was absolutely central and continues to be yeah. central in my own reading and, and thinking. That's you know something I really love about your work is is you know you you, you know breathe new life into this term. So I'm curious to hear you talk about both, you know, what what do you think happens to this notion of trauma when it's pulled across the different geographies that your book covers, right? Pulling it out of its of its sort of, you know, exhausted place in European theory now to talk about different geographies and different times. Um, and also what then your readings do into your mind to breathe some fresh life into this concept of trauma or, or, or I don't even know if we want to call it a concept but but as a method of reading that goes right. under the word trauma yeah I mean and then that's great you know you're the one thing I think that comes to mind off the top of my head is that it alerts us to difference so trauma as a concept as your methodology or whatever you want to call it um, has become so broad so diffuse almost useless if we think about it in terms of how readily it's applied you know i frequently have to tell my students you know they'll say they'll they'll analyze a text and they'll say this person's traumatized and that person's traumatized i'm like okay let's well, let me stop somebody had a bad thing happen to them here that doesn't necessarily mean that it's that it's they're trauma right it's got they're stressed out their trauma is somehow on the same level as somebody who you know was assaulted or or saw somebody a loved one killed um so if if the term has to have any meaning it has to be essentially uh, paired, I think, with other critical frameworks as a kind of top, both as a topic and as a method of focus. And so when we go to these global south contexts or we go to these contexts that are not the familiar frame of, you know, Europe and the Holocaust and everything afterward, um, we can see patterns, broader patterns of exploitation, of violence, slow violence again to use Rob Nixon's term one more time. Um, we can see neocolonial exploitation. We can see all of these things that are being addressed in the texts that I, that I examined. I'm thinking of a cat witch, especially with black hats and how he represents, he basically represents like, you know, corporate interests, right? Multinationals um, coming in. And so we can see all these things um, and we can then, uh, you know, we're in a position to understand uh, the kind of collective relationship between the literature, how the literature is trying to make sense of these changing social cultural forces, and that everyday trauma, the trauma that people have to deal with, that is, that is real, whether it's displacement or homelessness or, you know, being the target of violence. And every time we do that, we, for me anyway, every time we do that, we move past this event-based singular account of trauma, we kind of push against our own preconceptions and limitations, we're forced to stretch, um, which I think is necessary, right? Then I've never done just trauma in my work because that just seems, as you said, so much that's been done. It was done in the 90s, um, but it is remarkable, you know, and I don't want to be mean-spirited about this, I'm not name names, but it is remarkable about how frequently I still come across scholarship that either just applies Caruthian concepts of trauma to a text yeah. or or offers a, crit critique, a critique of Caruth as if, you know, those critiques haven't already been done. You know, they've been done yeah. in the last 20 years. So I think um, I think that's where the value, uh, that's where the value, I think, of the book 
is, especially in these South-South connections, right, in literary studies, um, and making those connections along aesthetic lines. One of the things that Carruth, as you know, that has been critiqued many times in the last 20, 30 years, um, is this insistence on the absolute silence of traumatic representation, that it's belated and you can never talk about it and it only comes back in fragments. And of course, many scholars Inlet studies and outside of this have argued that's not true. And so that also doesn't leave us with anywhere to go in the same way that high deconstruction didn't leave us with really anywhere to go except there's never any meaning, right? Like, so we always come back to the same place. Um, working with the concept, but suturing, suturing it to these other, to these other ideas, um, these other methodologies allows us to then examine the text for what's there rather than always talking about absence and that's Josh Peterson's term actually from his article from a few years ago yeah I mean hearing you talk about it I, and I, I thought about this after reading uh, reading the book was you know I think there'd be a really interesting I don't know if it'd be an essay or a symposium or, or collection um, maybe I should just find a way to do it but in trying to figure out you know you know what is trauma not as a master definition but is it a method is it a concept is it a form of reading because you know when you you're talking about suturing it and you know it does remind me of uh, for me anyway some of the 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 best parts of deconstruction which is its parasitic dimension right, right? that it's a sort of strategy of getting inside a text but then once it's inside that text it's put in a relationship of play and its relationship of play in order to see it you have to attend to these things like geography like history particular memorial structures and the way they recur right the difference between you know salon and socks thinking about the dead and you know thinking about partition thinking yeah. about you know violence and authoritarianism after independence you know these 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 are very different stories but you know trauma as your as your book you know both your books show i mean there's there's so many ways that it reveals something in texts and so in that way it's that's why i, I sort of struggle for the word is it a method is it a concept because concept sounds sounds a little bit too heavy-handed but yeah. method i think gets us inside that sense of 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 being parasitic and, and and setting something at play that then as readers and interpreters we see differently. Yeah, and we have, I, that's brilliant. And we have to hold that intention, right? You, what, when you say the parasitic relationship in deconstruction, um, that you put things under erasure as Spivak, you know, to use Spivak's term. But with using the word trauma, there's always a care. Uh, I have to be careful about not letting the medicalized definition of trauma that sort of circulates in the pop culture ether completely overwhelm any sense of what's happening in the text. So there's always that internal division, that internal um, kind of struggle, uh, which can be exhausting sometimes. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. you know, when you, you use this, I'm like, just for once, I wish I could just use a term that everyone agreed on, but then it would be boring. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it would also shorten every book by about a... 90 pages for real <laughs> so, and block us from innovation will be also uh you know visionary about that but no the medicalization of it is um i mean that's a real thing you know as i said last spring so any of my students from my imagining the americas class that might listen to this there was a moment where i was like 
you know, we were talking about conquest in the middle passage. I was like, they did not need psychiatric meds. This is not what we are talking about. We were talking about <laughs> oh a, a sense of an entire theoretical event. And, uh, you know, they didn't, they weren't suggesting that, but it was a way of tracing that, you know, trying to trace out for everyone this sense of the medicalization. Oh, God. Yeah, they, let's nip that in the curative <laughs> dimension, right? It's not diagnostic in that sense of like there's a pathology, but rather a, yeah, an animating yeah. force. Yeah. And maybe a similar question, um, you know, thinking of terms that are exhausted but get new life um, and have persistence rele- persistent relevance. I think trauma, you know, had a certain exhaustion but has this continuing relevance and new life in, in, you know, in, your, in your work and work of other people. I think there's no bigger term for asking that question than post-colonial, yep. right, which, which yeah. has been become a fraught term I, I i will admit personally to being frustrated by some of the over determinations by critics of the term but you know decolonial or anti-colonial they sort of have their own moments have had their own moments juxtaposed to the post-colonial so i'm yeah. curious and i like holding on to this notion of the post-colonial and i like the way it functions in your book so i wanted to ask you you know what what does the post-colonial mean for you in this book right how does it function in the book and given it its prominence and then the way it faded, you know, how does your book breathe important life back into the concept, whether it's back into the concept or as a way of recasting it a little bit, which are two very different ways of thinking about the way the term has new life or a sense of life after your book. I really like what you just, I mean, everything, but what you just said, recasting. Like for me, recasting gets quite close or in fact i think hits the mark that that we have to do that recasting work in order to make the post-colonial make sense again in 2022 right like we're we're not you know can as you know you know john it it can refer to so many different things beyond just the moment of political independence are we talking about post-colonial senses of identity or struggles for belonging post-colonial culture legacies of colonialism all of this can persist well past the moment of, you know, formal yeah. independence. So it is a very loose, very baggy category. Almost, I feel like I have to use, you almost have to use it ironically, right? Like a, a, when you use it. Um, but this recasting is important. I think recasting the term to be capacious in the sense that I'm proposing in this book, but with some defined limits. So, okay, so Nigeria and India for the sake of geographical limitation. Um, and more or less contemporary, although with the Chebe, I kind of I get around that a little bit. I think the revitalizing or the recasting, um, again, are the attachment to these other terms. To, to think of them, if we think about trauma, animism, animism and post-colonial literature, um, we're almost talking about a confluence, right? Like I'm, and I'm, I'm totally ripping off the excellent introduction from, I want to say, the future of trauma theory, uh, the edited book by um, Sam Durant, Kurt Bielens, and Bob Eaglestone, mm-hmm. where they address some of the future of, of the term. And, and the term becomes, you know, trauma by net definition, according to them, has to be a place where other forms of producing meaning meet. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. if it's to have any kind of legibility or viability, we, otherwise we end up with the, the, the thing that you just warned your students not to do last you know, last spring, which is to, you know, don't book a therapy appointment for the middle passage, right? Yeah. Um, so you, so in order to do that, I think post-colonial 
the post-colonial turn or the post-colonial frame where we are right now, I think you do have to have a kind of recasting and a suturing to these other terms, um, a kind of afterlife of post-colonialism to use. I don't know, everyone wants to use afterlife these days, so I'm, I don't know. Um, I love that. You know. I love that term, and it's so overdetermined in some ways. So it's, it's yeah. another one I think we'll be recasting for a while. Absolutely. I mean, I'm just envious because I haven't had a chance to, like, I'm like, oh, I love that term, but I don't quite know what I want to do with it. But, um, but you know, and, and to, you know, to end, to come back again to your question, I mean, most of the works in this book aren't set in the immediate aftermath of colonialism, but mm. decades after. So if we look at that, we see how some of these preconceptions of, or not the pre, pre, preconceptions, that's the wrong word, some of the um, kind of cornerstones of post-colonial studies, the legacy of colonial rule, um, you know, internalized you know, racism and white supremacy, um, the trauma that's born of all this colonial hegemony, all this stuff, economic, social, cultural, so we see how some of these preoccupations have persisted, but we also see the interaction between that immediate historical moment and then the contemporary moment in Nigeria and, and in India. How does the, and I'm thinking of freshwater here, how does the Ada move through the syncretic experience of the Obanje who possess her, the brother sisters, Ishwa, who's sort of a Christ figure, and Saint Vincent, who seems to be some sort of asexual or quite a non-binary figure in this marble room in her mind. And, and that's a given, right? By the time we read Freshwater, her mixed syncretic background, you know, Ibo and Christian, is just a given in the text. Mm-hmm. And the whole image of that marble room, whether you read it as a metaphor or not, um, it invites this kind of dirty reading, this entangled reading that does away with distance, and yet it's happening in a moment that is informed by post-colonial events, by the post-colonial, I don't know, lens, if you want to call it a lens, but also the materiality of being there. Yeah. So. And I think that, you know, that you mentioned that you said entangled, um, but even just your description is the sense in which I think I mean, it's my own assessment of the book, so you can you can correct or nuance or, <laughs> or deny or affirm. But I mean, I do think that that one of the ways I thought about the post-colonial after reading your book was that the post-colonial has to be talked about as an entangled space. Yes. And so, so part of the critique of the post-colonials, there is no aftermath. Colonialism has a sort of life inside the independent nation. But it's like, well, if the post-colonial describes entangled space right intellectual space affective space even architectural space religious space if it's entangled then that post is a kind of ironic but also marks a different kind of entanglement than colonial entanglement right which is which is a different a different function of hegemony and a different kind of struggle against it yeah different but i mean it sounds so reductive to say but different but similar right like yeah, you're yeah. We're, we're marking out similarities and differences and i also love the way that you you frame the post-colonial as kind of it's like moss or something like this kind of entanglement that that stretches historically and culturally in these ways so absolutely i would agree with that assessment a kind of parabola um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> to evoke a famous yes <laughs> yes <laughs> there you go I give the give every book life uh thank you <laughs> it's hard you know you move on from one book to another and it's like that old book is like the you know the the 
forgotten child, but uh, hopefully I know. has some presence. But you're still uh, held to account. People come into it. They're like, I read, I read your book and I loved it. And you're like, I wrote that a very long time ago. What did I say? Yeah, <laughs> well, I had, I had somebody ask me uh, recently at a at a conference that was online, and so um, felt more public for some reason than than others. But started asking me some detailed questions about my first book, which came out in two thousand one. Oh boy! <laughs> I, was like, I was like, wow, twenty years ago. Boy, that, I missed that, John. You know. But yeah. Also, I don't know what he was talking about. That sounds complicated <laughs> so. well let me ask you about uh readers i have sort of a pair of questions to as we as we wrap up um yeah you know one of the things about writing a book it gets published and um you know we get distance from it because it takes takes so long to come out but um one of the distances that comes with the publication of a book of course is that people read it and just like we as readers do creative important things with books we read readers do that with ours right they they, they take something from it um absolutely and, uh, deploy it and it's kind of it's the hermeneutics of 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 books right of, of reading it's it becomes part of them but also as authors if we resist the sort of authoritarianism of wanting everyone to have the exact response right Hopefully we don't <laughs> do that that we uh we request um there is also uh but we also, as authors, have, you know, what I call like a walkaway effect that we want to have on our readers, right? And I say walkaway because it's like to move and feel different after the book. That it has, you know, we aspire, uh, I think, as writers to, to, for our readers to walk a little bit different, to feel a little bit different, to see a little bit different, even smell different. Um, after reading the book. So I'm interested in that sense, a sort of rich sort of transformation of sensibilities. What do you hope readers walk away from the book in terms of that changed sense of sensibility? Yeah, I love the term walk away because it, it's a physical action, right? So it conveys motion again, and it conveys a change. It's not just like the brain has stopped reading, right? So you, yeah. um, so, so I love even the framing of that. And I, I would say that's, you know, I have a few, and I think, uh, you know, re respecting, of course, that, you know, everyone will have their own takeaways from this. So I think, first, I would hope that readers walk away respecting the fact that animist modalities of being, as I explore them in the book, the sort of different connotations and sides of them, have something pretty damn important to tell us about the representation of trauma, right? The literary representation of trauma, that this wasn't a hollow claim, that you leave thinking, yeah, this is important. Maybe I will pay attention to this in, you know, the next time I pick up a work in this area. Um, I'd like readers to understand that trauma, and this goes back to some of your earlier questions about trauma, um, if it's to be at all useful as a critical concept, has to be entangled, right? It has to be entangled in the social, the cultural, the aesthetic contexts from which it arises. If it's not, if it's siloed off, it's useless. And, you know, we need to put it in the garbage bin. So that kind of implication of the term trauma, um, so that we have to meet these accounts of post-colonial trauma on their own ground. We can't do it from the sort of safe, you know, the, the comfortable couch of the Freudian talking cure or, you know, trying to play amateur psychologist like both our students sometimes we experience in both our classrooms. No, we need to we need to actually meet the text on their own ground and 
to understand that animism helps us can help us do that that there is this immense rich old varied indigenous tradition of thinking through and with non-human matter that does not need and i think this is my big thing it does not need empirical validation from the so-called hard sciences in order to be intelligible not just because we're literary scholars right so i'm like i'm not writing a book about science because i'm not a scientist so mm -hmm. if i tried i'd be a fifth-rate scientist at best um, but we're talking about forms of knowing that exceed the kind of empirical rational uh kind of scientific method that you know we, we we carry that around with us because it's omnipresent and we don't often realize when we've got those goggles on mm -hmm. and so if 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 you walk away with those goggles off for even a few few minutes i think i'm happy think it's it's good I love that yeah no I'm glad I asked that was a really great response that in some ways I think takes us really to the to the heart of the book right and I think it's yeah. effective that way you know but obviously I, I read it and I loved it so <laughs> but um <laughs> so. yeah let me turn it around uh to you you know I mean it's interesting I got you know I'm just in some ways repeating a lot that you already said about your own writing process you know, sometimes we know exactly what we're going to say and it's pretty much what we thought we were going to say. And sometimes it's like, I think you said you had like a three line description of a chapter. And so you yeah. learned and were transformed by the writing of that chapter. But even those chapters that we know what we want to say, right? Uh, but especially those chapters where we have an intuition, right? And then we write yeah. into it. Um, you know, writing is intellectual and emotional and spiritual self-discovery so i'm curious to hear you as the writer on that same model of of the reader you know how do you how do you walk away differently after the process of writing this book and i mean that just in terms of partly in terms of how the book changes changed you right as an intellectual and and whatever else you might want to talk speak to but also, you know, the opportunity, like what comes after this? What horizons does yeah. it open up for you as a writer and intellectual? Yeah, thank you. It's, it's funny, you know, I wrote that book, that, this, or this book, the Animus book. I wrote it bef before the pandemic, so 500 years ago, at minimum. I submitted the manuscript just about, a, at least, at least. Um, I submitted the manuscript, I think, just about a month before the initial lockdowns in the U.S. So before March, I think February was my deadline. So March 2020, everything shut down. And it was odd to have that book published that summer when I was stuck at home with my family and no childcare, all, all the situations that so many have experienced. Nothing was really open. No one was vaccinated. No one was certain of anything. And in that sense, it's been more difficult to take stock of the book's composition or the impact of having written it, you know, whatever that impact would have made on me, because I'm not sure how much of that is the book and how much of that is the pandemic. Yeah. Um, but having, having said that, I think one thing I, that I walked away from this book with the feeling of is I walked away feeling reassured or emboldened about attending to literary studies and to trauma in ways that, again, refuse this medicalization, this universal model. Um, of the talking cure. You know, I'd done some of that work in the first book, but this is where I really kind of planted my flag. And I felt at the end of it, like I'd done that work, whatever the other shortcomings of this book, I had, I had done that mm -hmm. work. And it, and you know, it, it's also led me, and I think the conclusion hints at this a bit, 
It's led me toward thinking, as I think about solutions and alternative forms of narrativizing trauma and post-colonial trauma, um, you know, it really started me thinking about specific other artistic forms like music. And again, this comes up in the conclusion. Um, how might me identify, you know, Afro-Caribbean rhythm, tonalities, if you will, in contemporary fiction. Um, you know, I'm thinking of Dion Brand's What We All Long For, and of course, which is itself working in the tradition of Toni Morrison's jazz and all of these things. So trying to get even more specific about these cultural forms. Um, paying attention to texts that weave Caribbean art into narrative and to see how that weave shapes the representation of trauma, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Nathaniel Mackey's work on the paracritical has, I think, already become central to my thinking about the next book. I think it's going to move in that direction. Um, but I also am in mind of what Dominic LaCapra has to say about narrative forms in writing history, writing trauma, which is like over 20 years ago now. Um, the caution against thinking that an absence of a certain type of Western form is evidence of a lack, which la where lack is a pejorative, an absence isn't, you know, and he quite rightly says, well, don't, don't assume that. Just because there's no novel form in indigenous Maori traditions does not mean that this tradition is, that this cultural tradition is lacking something, right? A, and then B, if you, if you think about this in terms of lack, then you're not attending to what's being done in this text and you're yeah. missing the kind of masterful narrative and uh, kind of aesthetic moves that Brand makes in a novel like we, What We All Long For, which is clearly has this jazz structure running all the way through it. And you have to attend to, again, talking about attending to a text, you have to attend to that. Um, otherwise, you're really, you're, you're really doing an injustice to, to what you're reading. So I think that's where I'm going next i think it will be caribbean focused um and it will be uh it will be focused in in that area of study i would love to see how the the these first two books fold over into accounts of sound yeah. with the, with you i would uh, you know i often say when i ask this question people start to talk about the new directions of their work i'm like hurry up <laughs> i really feel it like hurry up and write that i would love to read oh. it and then get back together and talk about it so absolutely thanks John. this pandemic yeah. needs to end so that we can all reconnect with our our writing i mean it needs to end for obvious you know of course deeper reasons but um and i it was interesting to hear you talk about the uh, uh, you know assessing your work in the midst of a pandemic, I mean, we really do lack that conversational impact, right? Yeah. That sense of like being asked, responding, and all those ways that we typically sort of reckon with our own work after it goes through the publishing process. But um, yeah. I absolutely love this book. Um, and, Thank you, John. Um, you know, part of what I loved about it was everything we've talked about. And also, I just have to say, um, you know, this is a, a, a is one of a cluster of books that I've I've thought this about lately. Uh, how much I learned from it, and I really appreciate being able to learn from a book and not just taking stock of scholarship. I felt like it, it has an innovation to it um, and has a seriousness about it that I really learned a lot from it. And I really I did want to say just in this sort of as public as 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 this is, if this is a public. Uh, podcast i guess um just say that like thank you for for the, the opportunity to learn from that and honestly to learn from this conversation this has really been fantastic oh. I really well thank it. you john i mean thank you for the words that we all appreciate as writers um 
thank you so much for that generosity of, of intervention and for just having me here and giving me an opportunity to talk about my work. I've, I've loved this conversation and the way that you've pushed me to think about my own work as well. All right. Well, um, great to talk. And uh, when this new project comes out on Afro-Caribbean uh, rhythms and sound, uh, we will talk again. So, okay. Um, Thanks, John. Have a great rest of the day. Take care. You too.